Chapter 7 There is more love in the Bible than we hear from many preachers and writers. A sermon may often mention the love of God in passing, but rarely is a talk devoted entirely to this most encouraging and essential subject. Books of systematic theology will present arguments for the existence and character of the Almighty, but the table of contents and index will include few, if any, references to love. This may be why we think so little of our Heavenly Father's love for us. We are not convinced of his interest in his beloved children. We have not been taught about his personal affection for us. And yet, throughout the Bible, love is what motivates all his dealings with mankind. Without appreciating this, we may fail to grasp what is happening in the Bible at all. It's time to open the book of books and look more closely at what it says about the love of the eternal Elohim for the people he's placed on planet Earth. Although many tribes and nations have had female deities, the God of the Bible is always uncompromisingly He. Jesus confirmed this by speaking consistently of My Father. And, of course, by teaching us to pray, Our Father. In what ways, then, is he like a father? A good father is one who provides for his children, protects them, teaches them, disciplines them, and guides them through the stages of life. He opens doors, pulls strings, cheers them on, and catches them when they fall. A boy or girl with a strong and supportive father has many advantages in life and is likely to grow up balanced, sensible and successful. Some of us as children did not have such a positive experience of fatherhood. This is sad and cause for regret. And yet to the people concerned, it's often proved less disastrous than we might suppose. An unhappy childhood has caused many to think more carefully about parenting, and indeed to picture what an ideal father would be like. Many a man has become an excellent parent by carefully avoiding the mistakes suffered in his own childhood. And if I have never known the love of an earthly father at all, the love of my heavenly father may come as an even more wonderful and unexpected surprise. When Jesus and his early followers thought of Yahweh as a father, they envisaged the highest ideal of fatherhood and the best of all possible fathers. They would expect him to provide for his children's needs, to protect them, teach them, discipline them and guide them through the stages of life. Like any good parent, he would open doors, pull strings, cheer them on and catch them when they fall. To feel warm respect and love for such a father would be the most natural thing in the world. The early Christians did not find it hard to love their heavenly father, and they often spoke of his love for them. If he was the king, then they were the children and heirs of the royal household. They saw themselves as the children of the kingdom, set apart, 
to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. This meant very special privileges. For indeed, they said, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Every morning such children would anticipate his generous provision, his wise advice, and his careful protection. And every evening they would thank him for his gifts, his guidance, and his safekeeping. The early Christians had seen their father bring good out of every experience they went through. They could happily affirm, We know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. These men and women had heard the call of Yahweh and given him their love. They saw a purpose in their lives and could trust him to fulfil it. That is the kind of father we all need. And to our great comfort and delight, the father that we have. As we have seen, the word love carries many diverse meanings and is sometimes much misused. In English, however, we cannot easily find a better word that people will understand. Every teacher and translator faces difficulties of this sort because the words available to us often seem quite inadequate to convey what we really want to say. The same was true in Bible times. When the Bible writers spoke of love, they were obliged to take existing words and add as much value to them as possible. The Israelites were fortunate in this regard, having several good words in Hebrew to express various aspects of love, enabling them to understand a great deal about it. We'll look at five of them. In the Old Testament, the commonest word for love is the noun ahba. It speaks of an emotional attachment and desire, a commitment of loyalty offered whether or not the loved one is worthy of it or even wants it. This word describes Yahweh's intense love for the people he'd chosen and also their love for him. So he says to them, I have devotedly loved you with a devoted love that is everlasting, so I have continued my faithfulness to you. How wonderful it would be for anyone to know they are loved with such a devoted love. Another word for love in the Old Testament is the noun hesed, expressing steadfast loving kindness. It's the love of an established relationship based on a covenant or promise. There's a sense of obligation sought and willingly accepted. So a prophet might say to Yahweh, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you've sworn to our fathers from days of old. How privileged we would be to have this relationship of steadfast love. Then we come to the noun rahamim, meaning compassionate love, a spontaneous feeling of pity or affection. It's a love that forgives. So we read, Yahweh is good to all, and his compassionate love is over all that he has made. 
how greatly we need the warmth of this compassionate love. The verb hashak is much rarer, meaning to set one's love on someone or to desire someone. It's a deliberate love and appears in a significant passage where Yahweh says to the Israelites, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers. How marvellous would be the security of such a deliberate love. Then finally, the verb hanan describes gracious love, dealing favourably with someone whether or not they deserve it. So we read, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How much we need to be forgiven and accepted with this gracious love. From their own experience, the writers of the Old Testament had learned a great deal about the eternal God. With these five Hebrew words, they described his love as devoted, steadfast, compassionate, deliberate and gracious. They saw how actively he seeks to form relationships and covenants with those he loves in order to secure a mutual commitment of loyalty and faithfulness. In response to his all-embracing love for his people, he asks them to love him in the same way, with loyal, consistent, steadfast love. Many of them did. So, for example, we hear David, rescued from his enemies, declaring, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. An unknown writer would echo this, saying, I love Yahweh, for he's heard my voice and my cry for mercy. Other people, however, were much less open to the love of the eternal God. Some needed to be warned. Be very careful, therefore, to love Yahweh your God. It's significant and sad that in the Old Testament much more is said about Yahweh's love for his people than their love for him. Turning then to the New Testament, we come upon a curious fact. Although a number of well-known Greek words for love already existed in the works of playwrights and philosophers, the writers of the New Testament rarely used any of them. In the pagan literature of those days, the commonest Greek words for love are storge, meaning family fondness, philio, friendly attachment, and eros, passionate desire. But none of these words expressed what the early Christians understood of God's love for them or their love for him. They opted instead for a word that had become widely known through the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. This is the noun agape, with its associated verb agapeo. Among the Greeks, it wasn't a strong word. It didn't express great vigour or depth of feeling. But in Jewish communities speaking Greek, 
the word agape had gained an emotional intensity from its use in Bible passages of great power and beauty describing the love of God. All the energy of the Hebrew ahaba was packed into the Greek agape. Intense devotion and loyalty are essential to agape love. It expresses Yahweh's love for his own people and their love for him. It's a love freely given, a generous and purposeful love, and indeed a commitment to the welfare of someone whether or not they show themselves worthy or responsive. This is what agape love meant for Jesus when he said, No one has greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. A few weeks later, that was the love he gave them. As for the other four Hebrew words, their nearest equivalent in Greek was usually the noun eleos. In secular literature, this meant mercy or kindness. But when the Old Testament was rewritten in Greek, all the strength and vigour of the Hebrew prophets would again be loaded into this word. To its first readers, it expressed the awesome wonder of the steadfast, compassionate, deliberate, gracious love of the eternal Elohim. So we see that the Israelites and the early Christians did not speak of their relationship with Yahweh in terms of fondness or friendliness or passion. That's not what the Bible means by love for him. We love the living God when we're committed to him and set our hearts to seek him and to please him. We love him when we are loyal and faithful to him. That's what the Bible means when it asks us to love the Lord our God. And that's what it means when it speaks of his love for us. In many of the stories Jesus told, he portrays the love of God. And in some of them, this love is quite emotional. Love indeed is an emotional thing. To lose what we love is very painful. To find it again brings great joy. So Jesus described the feelings of a shepherd whose lamb is found, a woman whose coin is recovered, a father whose wayward son returns. And then he says there is joy like this in heaven whenever a lost soul is found and brought to safety. Vividly and unforgettably, he shows us the depth of his Father's love for human beings in their most wayward and degraded condition. It's a tender personal concern that goes in search of us when we're hopelessly bewildered and off course, and a great warmth of affection that delights to have us safely home. When Jesus tells these stories, he's speaking from experience. He has felt that joy. He knows that love. Our Father is still in search of men and women who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He comes gently, kindly, offering help if we want it, ready to withdraw if we do not. He reveals something of himself and waits for a response. That is how he comes looking for you. 
In the stillness of the evening there comes a peace that calms your troubled heart. Or a tiny mouse sits beside you without fear, and you see that all creation has been designed and made with love. Or you hear the Bible carefully explained and recognize the truth of what it says. Or you fall in love and realize that romance is a gift from one who loves and knows everything about love. He comes to you when you fail and most urgently need comfort and fresh hope. He comes to you when you are happy and for the first time in your life offer him your thanks. Suddenly you become aware that you are deeply loved. The love which had already convinced your mind has now won your heart, altering not just the way you think, but the way you are. As one of the Bible writers said, we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. You knew it before in theory, but now you believe it with all your soul. For some of us, this awareness remains longed for and elusive. We believe what we know, but still seem to feel very little. This may be a problem from the past. Perhaps all feeling has been numbed by failure, sorrow or distress. The only way forward is to take his love on trust. Whether you feel it or not, you are deeply loved by God. He loved you when he created you with your own personality and unique potential. He loved you before your birth, kept you safe through all those years, taught you everything you need to know. He's brought you to this present moment and now comes to help you with the next stages of your life. He loved you before you had any thought of loving him. He was concerned for you while you were a grief and an offence to him. It is written, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still offending against him, Christ died for us. It could not be said more clearly. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He planned and prepared and suffered for you while you were ignoring or even opposing his purpose for your life. Even now, his gift of love is offered to the least lovely, to the most unlovable, to those who have never perhaps felt loved by anyone. Such a woman, with years of sleazy living behind her, was found by Jesus and wept with relief and joy to know she was loved by the God she had so long offended. Saul of Tarsus, with his many cruelties forgiven, never forgot his encounter with the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To discover that God loves me as I am, with all my failures and regrets, and to find that he has plans for me, will change my life forever. It led that happy woman to honour Jesus publicly at risk of insult and ridicule. It carried Saul throughout the world, proclaiming the truth he'd discovered to any who would listen. It might do the same for you and me. In the Bible, 
God is simply described as love. Indeed, this is almost a definition. God is love. He's not just loving or inclined to love. He is himself love personified. There's no word in our English language that better describes him. Whenever we think of the eternal God, our first thought of him is love. He loves us whether we're lovable or not. He loves us because it's his nature to love. We don't have to persuade him to be sympathetic or compassionate or kind, because that is always how he is. The reason we know anything about love is simply because he has made us in his image and therefore capable of love. We love because he first loved us. We've seen how love takes pleasure in giving the very best to the beloved. A loving husband will think how to please his wife. A loving wife will think how to please her husband. Each will offer the best they have to one another and to their children and their friends and neighbours. In the same way, our Heavenly Father is glad to offer his very best to us. This doesn't mean we always understand what he's doing or appreciate his gifts. He knows what his children need and provides exactly that. Jesus said, If you who are far from perfect know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In the course of daily life, a good father will explain the options and alternatives to his children and help them discern for themselves the difference between sense and stupidity. He'll teach them how to make sound choices, exercise self-discipline, invest time and effort wisely, judge when a risk is worth taking, avoid serious errors and injuries, deal fairly and sensibly with other people, and so to succeed in life. In the same way, through experiences both pleasant and unpleasant, our Heavenly Father will teach us to be perceptive, poised, focused and consistent. We're encouraged to pray at any time for anything we need. Ask, said Jesus, and it will be given to you. But our Father will not grant our most selfish wants and whims. A spoilt child is one who's been allowed to manipulate his parents and so become selfish, vain and deceitful. No one can manipulate the eternal Elohim. He will do everything to help us grow up well, to become complete and mature in character, to achieve our full potential as men and women of God. We might expect an intelligent child to take notice of a good example and sound advice. But not all are so intelligent. And many lack the determination to resist peer pressure and powerful temptation. At times, in order to secure the safety of a daughter or a son, a father may need to warn and explain, and then perhaps to forbid. If all else fails, 
he'll enforce discipline, reducing privileges and increasing pains until the lesson is learned the hard way that might have been learned more easily. This is how our Father deals with us. He will help and also hinder, so we develop our strengths and overcome our weaknesses. Through what happens to us, he will build into our character the qualities we need, preparing us to achieve our full potential and become the people we can be. He makes sure we grow strong and wise, gentle and persevering, compassionate, considerate and self-disciplined. He brings out the best in us and expects the best of us. All this he does for his children because he loves each one of us as only a perfect father can. But there is one more thing, and this is among his greatest gifts. As soon as you have Yahweh for your father, you become a member of his family. Now you have brothers and sisters, young and old, far and near, who are glad to see you and enjoy your company. Each of them is special, accepted and loved by him and by one another. They will welcome and support and care for you, helping you in many ways and teaching you many things. They'll encourage you to make progress, widening your horizons with opportunities to be useful in their company and in the world around. This may come as a surprise and a great delight. Knowing I'm accepted and valued and honoured among such special people, I have a deep longing to be worthy of their love and to love them as deeply as they love me. In all his teaching, Jesus made faith a very personal matter. He taught us to think about individual choices, attitudes, habits and beliefs. This was one of his great innovations. When crowds came to hear him, he focused on each of you. He singled out everyone who asks. He identified the one who hears the word and anyone who is not offended. He asked, which of you having a son? Or which of you desiring to build a tower? And many of his parables addressed issues of individual responsibility and opportunity. In modern English, the word you will serve either for one person or for many. This can be very confusing. It means we easily miss the point when Jesus addresses a crowd and emphasizes you yourself, asking each man or woman to make a decision or response. His meaning is much clearer in the old authorised Bible of 1611, with its archaic thee and thou. When thou prayest, if thy right hand offend thee, if thy brother hath aught against thee, if thine eye be evil. Jesus intended all this to be intensely personal. The importance of this is often overlooked. It's not enough to belong to a covenant nation, or a priestly family, or a good church. It's through personal faith that I have peace with God. I stand or fall in my own right on that account. In the Book of Life, 
are written the names of believers, not of nations or families or churches. Jesus said, If anyone has ears to hear, if anyone would come after me, if anyone keep my word, the offer is for you yourself to be accepted or refused. Just as it's a personal thing to believe in Jesus, so it's a personal thing to live each day with the Lord your God. There will be private dealings between you and him that no one else knows about. If you pray, it will be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you help someone, it will be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you fast, you fast in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the teaching of Jesus. Then if I have done wrong, I will speak directly to my Lord. God be merciful to me, the offender. If I'm in trouble, I'll cry, Lord, please help me. If I'm grateful, I will say, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Nothing could be more personal than that. When I put my trust in Jesus, I start to live with God. His Spirit begins to inspire some radical changes in my personality, my attitudes, my convictions, priorities and loyalties. So the Bible says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That is as it should be. Indeed, whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him at all. Now that my life is in his hands, I find to my amazement he's interested in all I do. In every decision I ask him to guide me. In every difficulty I ask him to help me, and he does. I find myself thinking differently about my circumstances and the people I'm with. I see possibilities in myself and in the world around me. I become aware of better ways to act and to react. I realise what can be accomplished by gentleness, patience and compassion. I begin to see the power of right and wrong, to build or to destroy. I learn the value of purity, honesty and truth. I discover how much good a little generosity can do. I become aware of better options, wiser choices and fresh directions. I'm seeing the world and everything in it with fresh eyes. My longing is now to become a better person, more like Jesus, more like my Heavenly Father, more like my friends and family who truly follow him. That's what we'd expect for all who follow Jesus. It is written, We all with unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's not our doing, but his doing in us. Then I begin to see the people around me, not as they were, or as they are, but as they might be, if only they were loved a little more. And this is entirely natural. 
For we read that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. His love is changing not just the way I think, but the way I am. My personality is intensified, enriched and rounded out with his own strength of character given to me. Previously I was undoubtedly lacking something. Now I have become complete in him. And yet I'm still recognisably myself. My personality is still my own and no one could mistake me for someone else. I may be an active person like Martha or sensitive like Mary. I may be bold as Peter or thoughtful as John. I may be blunt and direct like Thomas, diffident like Philip or more outgoing like Andrew. Each of the disciples was born and raised with the exact personality God gave them. But each was then profoundly influenced by close contact with Jesus. And each, after his departure, would be refined, intensified and inspired by his spirit to become what he intended them each to be. They were the same people as before, but empowered with new life. Many astonishing discoveries will follow in the course of this life, but nothing matters so much as possessing the life itself. Jesus called it abundant life. And so it is. Now that I'm living with the Lord my God, I can raise my head among people who reckon they are better than me. In the eyes of the world, I may be a nobody. Yet my Heavenly Father loves me, guides me, strengthens me and purifies me, and every day provides for me. I have become a very special person, very special indeed to him and to his people. This is how I learn to live with God. Just as he's always known me, I'm learning to know him. Just as he is aware of my concerns, so I become aware of his concerns. Now I'm in touch with the eternal Elohim, not as a theory or as a fact, but as a person. And with a person I may have a relationship. Everything I see and hear and do, I see and hear and do with him. Every experience is shared. He knows what's happening and he's involved.